Hey fam, welcome back to another episode of Cult Stuff and Chill, in which we did not super plan ahead for what we were going to start off the podcast with, but Ashley told me that she has a story that involves getting into an altercation at a McDonald's, and I feel like there is no better way to start this podcast than by Ashley detailing this event. So please, take the floor. Okay, so um, last night, I, as usual, went out to the barn. And then I had to stop and get my partner and I something to eat. I was like, I'll just stop by McDonald's. It's the only thing open. So I go to McDonald's and it is like hopping. Everybody is like, McDonald's is the only thing open. That's what we're going to get. So, you know, drive through line out the parking lot. I was like, I'll just go in because my car was low on gas. So I was like, I'll just go in and then, you know, order inside. That way I'm not like wasting gas sitting in this drive through line. So the series of events is very important because it like details what a ridiculous situation this was. So I'm walking in, there's a guy walking out. Okay. This guy, you know, he has his food. He's good. I get in and I see like, there is this toe headed looking white old man and his not old man. He's like in his forties or fifties with his, I assume his son and like teenage son and they're like backing away from the counter like they had just ordered so this is like point zero of the timeline and so I go up to the counter and I order you know whatever and then after me walk in like three black people which is important again normally I wouldn't address that but it is important and also all the staff are black so it's like the only white people in there are me and this guy and his son again important So I go and sit down and I'm just like, you know, watching TikToks on silent until I get my food. And it couldn't have been more than like five or 10 minutes. Okay. And so one of the girls goes up and she's like, hey, I got to get going to work. Like, can you get me my food? And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll grab your food real quick. And so they give her her food. It was one of the black girls. And so she grabs her food. She goes. So that sets this older white man off. He's like, he's like what like he starts like kind of mumbling to himself you know how like oh this is bullshit so then another kid that you know was with that group of three people that came in he gets his food because it was like you know like a cheeseburger and so this guy he get two people have now gotten their food ahead of this older white dude and so that's when he like loses his shit and he goes up and he like goes behind the counter and starts yelling at the manager behind the counter yeah like straight up you know how like mcdonald's are set up where it has like the two counters he walks in in there and like basically starts yelling at the manager has this manager like cornered in like the side that's like over um to like the right where like you can't get out of that corner Mm -hmm. if you're like being blocked off and he starts like yelling at this guy and he was just like, this is bullshit. All I ordered was like a two cheeseburger meal and a McDouble meal. And you guys, two people have gotten their food before me. And I've been waiting for half an hour. Now, it couldn't have been more than five to ten minutes that this dude was oh waiting. God. Like, and also, like, you can see how busy they are. They are running around. They are understaffed. And so mm-hmm. he is just yelling. And the dude's like, okay, sir, we'll get it for you right away. So he's like, but you have to let me through. And so the guy kind of backs out and he goes and he's sitting there. And he goes over to the table where um, there's, like, this black guy and another girl had come in 
after and they're sitting I they must have known each other because they're like sitting together and this guy like kind of has his phone out and I can see he's recording the situation because he's like something's gonna fucking go down um and so this white dude is just sitting there mumbling at that point like I get my food and I'm like you know what I'll get my food but I'm gonna say something to this dude because like there are all of these black people here. They probably don't feel, like, comfortable stepping mm-hmm. up to this angry white man. But I'm insane. Like, I'm fucking crazy. I will – I – that is my toxic trait is that I love getting in altercations with strangers <laughs> like that. Where, like, the stakes are relatively low, but, like, they're usually with their families and I'm usually alone. And it's mm-hmm. just, like, you know that – this is going to be traumatizing for their kid because of the way that they're acting and, like, that somebody called them out on their bullshit. Also, I hate it when white people are just in there throwing their dicks around and, like, thinking that they really have done something. Like, Mm -hmm. he thought he did something by, like, being just an angry white man. So I go. I get my food. I'm walking past him. I'm like, are you fucking joking, sir? Like, you can see how busy they are. They're people, too. They deserve to, you know, you can wait 10, 15 minutes for your food. It's McDonald's. It's not that pressing. So then he starts, like, coming after me. He's like, well, you you can say that because you already have your food. Why don't you just go home and go to sleep? Why don't you just, you know, I've been here for all day. And I'm like, you've been here for fucking 15 minutes. And he starts just, like, going off. And I'm like, are you serious? You're acting like a baby right now. And then he's like, I'm not a baby. He's like, you're a Karen. And I'm like, I was like, dude, you're the one that went behind the counter to start yelling at these people. And also, like, while I'm kind of altercating with this dude, I'm, like, in the back of my mind, I'm, like, I'm going to give these people enough time to get this food ready for him. Mm-hmm. Keep him so distracted that... while they get his food and get him out of there. Yeah, because he was also, like, as he, like, he was over to this other table of people, and he was, like, kind of, like, yelling at them about the situation. You could tell that they were, like, very visibly uncomfortable, but they're not going to say anything. Mm-mm. Like, it's his, I mean, he was a cop-looking motherfucker. Yeah. And... It was just, like, the whole situation was just really uncomfortable. And so then I w- he was, like, I called him a baby. And then he's, like, no, you're a Karen. I'm, like, dude, you're the one that went behind the counter. And I was, like, oh, like, are you that upset that you didn't get your $2 cheeseburger? Are you going to cry about it? You're being a big baby. What a spoiled brat. You're very entitled, aren't you? And he was just, like, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out of here, you bitch. And, like, just get, like kept calling me a bitch. And, like, just devolved. And then I heard them, like, call a number order. He's like, that's mine. And so I was like, okay, bye. He's like, fucking bitch, as I, like, walked out. I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. See ya. See ya. I really uh, hope that that guy that was recording posts that to TikTok. And I can oh just, God. like, see you verbally accosting a middle-aged. I mean, I'll I'll say that it wasn't my best work. But it was also, like... It was a very strategic of, like, I need to egg him on just enough that he's, like, distracted by me, mm-hmm. but, like, also kind of diffuse it and start being ridiculous, like, when it gets too tense. So it's, like, yeah. kind of, like, riding that line. Like, it wasn't super eloquent. Like, I wasn't, you know, I was definitely just, like, antagonizing this dude who, you know what, if you're going to yell at fucking McDonald's workers over a cheeseburger, like, what are your priorities in life? Right. Like, nobody that's working there is getting paid enough to put up with that bullshit. Like, I guarantee no. you, they they don't give a shit. And at 1030 at night. Yeah. When they're well, running ragged. I was visiting you just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We were in that same situation where it was late when we left your barn. And when we pulled through town, McDonald's is the only place open. And there was, like, a mile-long drive through line. I guarantee you, they do not get paid enough to, A, no. deal with that sort of influx of customer or deal with somebody's stupid bullshit and he was like, throwing a temper no tantrum way. literally as someone that also works customer service like 
I guarantee you everyone in that McDonald's is just an empty husk of a person. Like, they don't have the capacity right. to deal with that man. So. Exactly. So that's why I was like, no, I'm just going to antagonize shit. Because I'm like, I've been in that situation. And, like, I mean, maybe they didn't want it. But, like, I would have wanted someone to come in and be like, mm-hmm. no, you're being a piece of shit. And also it was like, because everyone else is black, is like, this is a very uncomfortable situation. Because it does feel kind of race-driven on his end, where mm-hmm. he was definitely just, like, being an asshole oh i also asked him like so you're just gonna come in here and start swinging your dick around doing the white man thing and into- trying to to intimidate everybody and he just he's like kind of flabbergasted that mm-hmm. i would like say that it was just i mean i thought it was kind of funny and like it wasn't that serious to me that's why i was mm-hmm. like but also it's like do not go after fucking mcdonald's workers no there's a lot of other more reasonable places to take out that rage he was like very physically intimidating but Mm -hmm. like for me i'm not intimidated by fat white men i just like can't imagine i don't want to be like i'm a libra but like i either a don't get pressed about things in that way or like i just i don't know i just like cannot physically feel that sort of extreme emotion about anything like imagine being that pissed about a fucking cheeseburger right how do you have the capacity within yourself to be that upset about a cheeseburger something that like i think that i've noticed more as i've gotten older is that people are fucking crazy just Mm -hmm. like on the reg like i have encountered so many just like insane people who look like they have good jobs you know they have nice clothes you know they look well groomed and they are just batshit insane in the in the wild and it's like Humans really do just be, like, apes, honestly. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, and again, I also work in a customer service role, and I get this all the time. Thankfully, it's not, like, an over-the-counter thing where I work. It's all mostly over the phone, some over-the-counter. Anyways, the amount of people that I get that will call and yell at a customer service representative over a $2 charge on the bill, whatever bill they're looking at, I'm like, imagine being that butthurt over $2 that you're going yeah. to ruin someone's day. Well, and, like, I can understand that some people are poor and, like, $2 is, like, really $2. Mm-hmm. But also, at the same time, it's, like, you can't be upset if it's a mm-hmm. charge that's, like, kind of your own fault. Like, if it's a late charge or something. Yeah. You and know. most of the time it is. And they're like, well, can you get rid of that? It's like, no, I can't. And if you had paid this bill on time, you wouldn't see that, Karen. Right. God, like... It's just, oh, God, this this gets my heart. This fucking <laughs> people that are rude to customer service people because, oh, my God, like, I don't think you understand, not you, but, like, just the general public understands, like, even just say you call in somewhere and you have a customer service representative on the phone for five, maybe 10, possibly 15 minutes and you're being rude to them, that will ruin their entire day. Yeah. And imagine ruining someone's day over $2. It's just bullshit is what it it's is. It's not worth it. It's not. It's not hard to be nice. And like the thing is, like a lot of the time, they're not having unreasonable requests. Like it's okay to be like, oh, what's, you know, why is it taking so long, blah, blah, blah. But if you're mm-hmm. nice to the person at the counter or over the phone, I almost can guarantee you, if you are nice to them when you're approaching them with whatever issue it is, they're going to be a hundred times more willing to help you and get it out even quicker than they will if you're verbally accosting them. Right. 
Well, and then it's like, sometimes it's like, yeah, you can make stuff happen, but when you're screaming at me, no, mm-hmm. I can't. Like... Yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How was your week, Devin? Did you get it to was... any altercations? I didn't get into any altercations. It was okay. Oh, I did have... Okay, so the reason I think that hit home so so much is I did have a very rude customer this week that literally ruined my entire day on Thursday. Um, so that's why that story really, you know, tickled the heartstrings. But um, I... It was okay. It was an okay week. Many highs, many lows. I had a very high moment in which... I'm making custom shaped glitter right now for a project, um, which I won't disclose now because it's four people as surprises, um, but my glitters turned out wonderfully, and then I tried to put them in the thing that they're going in, and it was a big fat failure. So it was very high on the glitter making front and very low on the putting it into the thing front. Um, so yesterday I had a little bit of a meltdown over, uh, the way in which glitter was going into an object, which is a very silly thing to have a meltdown over, but, um, arts and crafts, I take it seriously, man. Also, nacho fries return this week. Oh my God. Nacho fries are back. (laughs) I'm so excited. It's funny because I think both Devin and I went out to like, uh, we went out to get steak. Because, you know, mm-hmm. it's Friday. It's a yeah. ritual. And so I was, like, actually at this steakhouse in our area. And, like, um, they had a TV there. And I saw that nacho fries were back. And I literally called Devin on my way home from mm-hmm. the steakhouse. I was like, Devin, I have something very important to tell you. And she's like, what? What? I was like, nacho fries are back. Well, you know what's funny, too, though? Okay, because <laughs> Ashley and I, we really only call each other on the days in which we're doing this podcast. Other than that, it's like we're pretty in constant communication, but it's always over text. So the first time she called me, I declined because I'm like, oh, she's probably a butt dial. Like, this is very out of character. And then she called a second time. I was like, okay, something serious has happened. <laughs> something bad has happened in her life. So I picked it up, and she goes, literally no introduction, nacho fries are back. I was like, oh. <gasps> I'm so glad you called me. This was definitely worth the like mini panic that it induced. So thank you. And then the next day I went to get nacho fries for lunch and then I didn't tell her. And then like not two minutes after I had finished my nacho fries, she sends me a picture of nacho fries that she had just gotten. I'm like, bitch, me too. So that was probably the high point of my week this week was not the glitter working out, but the nacho fries coming back. Ooh, it's Ashley's story time. Ashley's story. The time, 3 a.m., the date, Boxing Day, 1980, the place, the Royal Air Force Woodbridge, a military airbase in the U.K. At this point, the airbase was being used by the U.S. Air Force to combat the commies during the Cold War, but on this particular night, uh, they had sent out a security patrol out doing their thing to patrol. And these dudes, they saw some lights descending into the nearby Rundlesham Forest. Now, these military patrol dudes are like, what the fuck? What was that? So they went to investigate, logically thinking that they're on an Air Force base. There's another Air Force base not too far away. It could be some sort of aircraft that's gone down. You know, they might need help. They might have some emergency services out there. They don't know. So they go out to the woods. And what they witness there is a glowing object metallic in appearance oh my god is this an alien story 
with colored lights. Yes. Okay, you don't know how bad I needed this. I'm, of course, talking about the Roswell of the UK, the Rundlesham Forest incident. Yay. Tell me about the aliens. So against the better judgment of these patrol dudes, they actually go up and they approach the glowing thingamabob, thinking still, you know, this might be some kind of downed aircraft. Somebody might be inside it. They obviously didn't have drones or anything back then, but they thought it might be something that, like, was just on fire. As they approached it, it actually zipped through the trees and disappeared. Sergeant Jim Peniston, whose name kind of looks like Peniston. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to pronounce it that way, too. Sergeant Jim Peniston, one of the guys on patrol, claimed that they had encountered a three-meter-tall craft of unknown origin made of smooth, opaque black glass, covered in hieroglyphic-like characters situated on fixed legs. He also claimed to have touched it before it took off through the trees and that it had telepathically downloaded binary codes into his brain that had detailed him out the coordinates of a mythical phantom island off the coast of Ireland known as High Brazil that appears once every seven years, but you can only see it in the distance and you cannot actually get to it. So Ed Cabaseg... Another member of the patrol said in his statement, not really that it was a UFO or anything, he said, we figured the lights were coming from past the forest since nothing was visible when we passed through the forest. We could see a glowing near the beacon light, but as we got closer, we found it to be a lit up farmhouse. We got to a vantage point where we could determine that what we were chasing was only a beacon light off in the distance. Another eyewitness in this expedition, John Burroughs, stated, We could see a beacon going around, so we went towards it. We followed it for about two miles or three kilometers before we could see it was coming from a lighthouse. However, John also reported a noise that was like a woman screaming and that you could hear the farm animals making a lot of noises. He also reported that the same noises occurred two days later in a later incident. It is worth noting that muntjac deer, which are native to that forest, are known for their loud shrill bark when alarmed, so those noises very easily could have been attributed to those deer. Mm -hmm. But what set them off into their screaming fits has yet to be decided. Sergeant Adrian Bustinza is recorded as saying, When I arrived at the scene, it meaning the unidentified craft, was going in and out through the trees, and at one stage, it was hovering. So you kind of have some of these eyewitnesses detailing different things. Half of them are saying this is some kind of unidentified aircraft. The other half are saying it was just a lighthouse. It was nothing on their, like, official statements. About 4 p.m., they decided to call the police, and the police came out to investigate. They didn't really find much. They didn't see the lights, and they did report that the lights that they could see in the distance were the lights from the Orford Nest Lighthouse. It was pretty far away on the coast. So everyone settles down, and they go to bed until daybreak the next morning, and more military dudes, they go back out and investigate to see if they can find anything in the light of day, which they do end up finding three small impressions on the ground in a triangular pattern, as well as burn marks and broken branches on some of the trees nearby. The military guys in this expedition, they're like, yo, police, we found some shit. You should really come check it out. The police came out, and they're like, eh, it's just some fucking animal's been out here, mate. What the fuck (laughs) are you on about? And basically just, like, dismiss them and left. So at this point, it's like the military doesn't know what's going on. The police don't know what's going on. So it's time to call in the big guns. 
And by big guns, I mean they just, like, went slightly up the ladder and they called out the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt. So Charlie, he takes another investigation team out into the woods a few days later on the 28th, which in much later documents was reported to be the 29th, but there was, like, some time between when the documents were written. So, like, it was either the 28th or the 29th. Mm -hmm. And they took a radiation meter... And were just combing through the woods, seeing if they could find anything. They did find something, but they basically only found a minimally higher amount of radiation. Um, basically, it was 0 0.07 millirontgens, um, which the baseline of the area was like 0 0.03 to 0 0.04 millirontgens, so only a few milliront, you know, a few points of a millirontgen. They did, however, record spikes in other areas of the forest, not just the area where the incident happened. Charlie recorded all of the results of this excursion on a little tape recorder, a la Agent Dale Cooper, if you're a Twin Peaks fan. Ooh, I love Twin Peaks. So these military dudes, they're out investigating. I can only imagine that they were probably trying to determine if Deer Scat was alien shit and probably talking about <laughs> clapping alien cheeks. I don't know Ooh. what dudes talk about. That's not what I can imagine. <laughs> All of a sudden, these dudes who are out there, again, a couple days after the first incident, they start to witness flashing lights, almost in line with a nearby farmhouse. However, during these flashing lights, they also make the observation that they can see the Orford Nest lighthouse off to the distance, but a bit further to the east than these other lights. So, like, they're saying, okay, we can see the lighthouse. These lights aren't coming from the lighthouse. They reported that a red sun-like light was seen through the trees that moved around and pulsed. It appeared to throw off glowing particles, and then it broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two to the north, one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. They moved quickly in sharp angular movements, displaying red, green, and blue lights. The northern objects appeared to be elliptical through a 8-12 power lens, but eventually turned into full circles before they disappeared. Now, the ones to the north remained visible for about an hour, and the one to the south was visible for two to three hours, and seemed to beam down a stream of light occasionally, like it was picking up cows or something. They got a taste of that human cheeseburger, and they're like, bitch, like, we got to take this back to planet it, whatever. No, We're they gonna... probably saw that white dude throwing a fucking temper tantrum <laughs> at the McDonald's. And... They're like, this must be really good. Charles Halt goes on to write an official Air Force memo about two weeks after the initial incident titled Unexplained Lights, detailing basically everything that I just mentioned. And it was not, it was never classified and it was made public to the U.S. under the Freedom of Information Act in 1983. So time passes and Charlie, he just doesn't quite feel right about how the U.S. and the U.K. governments handled the situation. He is convinced that this was some sort of extraterrestrial event that was basically just being covered up, and eventually in June of 2010, Charlie, now a retired colonel, he signs a notarized affidavit in which he summarized again what had happened and that he believed it to be extraterrestrial nature, also that he believed that the UK and the US governments were basically in cahoots to cover it up because that's what governments do, they cover shit up. After this, the commander of the Woodbridge base at the time, Ted Conrad, provided a statement about the incident, and he basically said that nothing that resembled Charlie's descriptions had actually been cited, and he actually scolded Charlie, saying he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that <laughs> his country and Britain both conspired to deceive their citizens over the issue. Like, he knows better. 
Which, does he though? Because both the U.S. and the U.K. government have had a terrible track record of, like, being honest and upfront when Mm -hmm. it comes to shit, especially with their involvement in stuff like UFOs and, like, the Kennedy assassinations. Yeah, we're not the most reliable... (laughs) Reliable source. And when I say we, I mean the governments. And it's it's like from last week when they were saying, oh, you know, policemen and clergymen and politicians and, and businessmen have cited the the jersey devil it's like okay but they're not credible at all no nope. the commander teddy he said that he had also interviewed sergeant jim peniston about the incident <laughs> and neither he nor any of the other soldiers ever mentioned anything to him about the reported incident and basically teddy chalks the whole incident up to being a hoax by these servicemen and accused charlie of being a clout goblin I can only imagine that, like, this commander dude, Ted, he probably was a douchebag, and even Mm -hmm. if they had seen something, they probably weren't going to say anything to him. Right. Like, I wouldn't. I'd just be like, yeah. It's like when you go to the psychiatrist and they're like, yeah, do you ever think about murder? And I'm like, no. Of course not. (laughs) But it's like all the time, man. I think about murder all the time. I think, okay, if you, I think everyone does, like... Or maybe we're just, like, both on the same frequency of, like, a little bit unstable where we've, like, contemplated how easy it would be to just, like, get rid of someone if we wanted to. But Yeah. You know how easy it'd be to do a murder? So easy. The hard part is getting away with it. But also, I feel like you and I have listened to, watched enough true crime and also, you know, maybe the common sense is there that we would be able to get away with it. I'm not going to actually murder someone, guys. I'm just going to contemplate no. how easy it would be, okay? Full disclosure, we wouldn't murder people. Because honestly, that's like a lot of work. I don't want to ruin my nails. No. No. And I can't get that pressed over a cheeseburger, let alone like get angry enough to murder <laughs> a person. Anyways, so the Ministry of Defense, which if you don't know, is basically the UK equivalent of the Department of Defense, had an extensive file written about this incident, which wasn't released until 2001. But this file details out how this particular incident definitely was not a UFO. They would not take this seriously, which really led people to become even more suspicious of why do you have this big ass file all it says is that there's nothing to see here Mm -hmm. the government says that the reason that this is such a large file is because it contains a lot of correspondence about the event and responses to inquiries from the public what they're trying to prove by that is just saying because everybody's asking about it it just keeps growing we've had a lot of stuff we've had to talk about it internally just to make sure everybody's on the same page but nothing's really going on here mm-hmm. david clark a british ufo researcher reported on a claim that the incident was actually set up by the uk's special air services or sas as sort of a prank or revenge on the u.s air force stemming from an incident where the SAS parachuted onto the Woodbridge base to test out its security. The U.S. Air Force, having recently upgraded their radar system, spotted the SAS parachuters, rounded them up, and basically just beat the fuck out of them, interrogating them, called them unidentified aliens, and then, like, kicked them down the street. However, David Clark's extensive investigation concluded that this wasn't true and they could not find any record of the SAS incident, Well, of course, they wouldn't have recorded that. 
Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have recorded that, but he's saying, like, it's not possible. This isn't possible because they didn't record it. But, again. That's what the government wants you to think. I feel like that's what these dudes want you to think. It's like they don't want to be <laughs> called out for their stupidity, doing stupid shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Daniel Simpson, who is the director of the fictional found footage movie based around the incident titled The Rendlesham UFO Incident, had an interview with the publication, and he detailed the following allegedly true story about a conspiracy uh, surrounding the nearby Bentwaters Air Base. He's recorded saying, I recently heard a very interesting story of a guy that went up to the Bentwaters Air Base, and because it's privately owned, some of the buildings are rented out to people. A company up there wanted to have their internet sorted out, and this guy dug down, and he was a telecom guy. He came back, and he was sheet white. He couldn't believe it. He said that he'd come, he'd just come across these cables two foot down, and they were cables delivering such a powerful internet connection, but that these cables were from 1980. They were from 1980, and yet they were so in advance of what we've even got now. I'm told that all the time that what we get technologically is much behind what the military actually know. Just to kind of summarize what this guy is basically saying is that this was some sort of military craft, not necessarily a UFO in an extraterrestrial sense, but that the military had access to some technology that we didn't know about Mm -hmm. then and that it came from the other air base that was, I believe at that time, being run by the Royal Air Force. Mm -hmm. And then... The U.S. Air Force was at the the other one, and so they're saying, like, the U.S. Air Force didn't know about the U.K. Air Force's thing, and so they're just like, oh, what the fuck is this magic right, shit? Right. Skeptics have come up with a few theories about more logical explanations behind the incident. So the first theory is that it was just simply a hoax. One former U.S. security policeman, Kevin Cond, claimed that he had been driving around the area in a modified police vehicle and that that might have been the lights that people were seeing because he had modified the lights on it to do something fancy. There's no evidence that he was out patrolling the night of the incident. Another theory is that it was a Soviet spy satellite, but that's just kind of like a random theory thrown out there. There's no real evidence behind it. There's a theory that the star-like objects Charlie reported on the 28th were just that stars distorted by atmospheric and optical effects and that the positions of the brightest star actually matched up with the constellation Sirius. One of the more plausible theories is that the sightings were due to a combination of three main factors. One, that the initial sighting was a meteor or some other sort of space debris burning up in the atmosphere creating a large fireball, which I've seen stuff like that before and it doesn't move around it just like Mm -hmm. goes straight down and it's like scary when it happens because you're like what the fuck is that but then nothing happens and you're just like okay two that the supposed landing marks on the forest floor were claimed to be rabbit diggings and this claim was substantiated by foresters and the police basically just that the rabbits were digging around i don't Mm -hmm. know doing something Three, that all of the lights caused were caused by the Orfordness lighthouse, and that was some sort of optical illusion that, yes, you could see it over here, but that it was kind of getting projected in clouds or whatever. This matches up with the recordings from Charlie Holt's tape recorder in which he reported that the lights flashed every five seconds, which is the same flash rate for the Orfordness lighthouse. 
In January of 2009, Brian Dunning, who's the creator of the Skeptoid podcast, which I've never listened to, but this was this was on uh, an article I was reading. Mm-hmm. He did a deep dive into the original eyewitness reports, audio recordings, and media f- reporting of the event, and he concluded that Colonel Halt's thoroughness was commendable, but even he can be mistaken. Without exception, everything he reported on his audio tape and in his written memo has a perfectly rational and unremarkable explanation. All that remains is a tale that the men were debriefed and ordered never to mention the event and warned that bullets are cheap. Well, as we've seen on television, the men all talk quite freely about it, and even Colonel Halt says that to this day nobody has ever debriefed him. So this appears to just be another dramatic invention for television, perhaps for from one of the men who have expanded their stories over the years. When you examine each piece of evidence separately on it or on its own merit, you avoid the trap of pattern matching and finding correlations where none exist. The meteors have nothing to do with the lighthouse or the rabbit diggings, but when you hear all three stories told together, it's easy to conclude, as did the airmen, that the light overhead became an alien spacecraft in the forest. Always remember separate pieces of poor evidence don't aggregate together into a single piece of good evidence. You can stack cow pies as high as you want, but they won't turn into a bar of gold. So, fuck that guy, because he's basically fuck just calling guy. them crazy. <laughs> It's kind of like Occam's razor, though, where it's like sometimes the easiest explanation is the correct explanation. And right. I feel like aliens in this case is the easiest explanation. Exactly. Also, it's like you can be bullied out of testifying. Yeah, easily, especially if the government is involved or like some sort of enforcing agency. Well, and also it's like these guys, they are in the UK, but they're U.S., soldiers how easy would it be for the the government just to be like listen you cannot come home mm-hmm. like we can put you on a an aircraft coming home and it could go down right that's just kind of my speculation i think that the government is super shady and so i don't think that we should trust them Mm-mm. anyways in 2005 the forestry commission created a trail in the rendlesham forest due to public interest and named it the ufo trail and in 2015 George Taylor was out walking his dog when he spotted three balls of light in the sky near a Royal Air Force helicopter, which he got pretty spooked by and claimed he had seen something that he felt like he wasn't supposed to see. But that was kind of the last incident involving Mm. the Rendlesham Forest to this day. Maybe we'll see more. I hope so. I wonder if it was Prince Harry driving that helicopter. Oh, God, I hope so. Can you imagine? Maybe that's why he's been kind of... (laughs) Is he shunned right now? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so well, I feel like it's always been a little, like, tepid with him and the royal family, and I think it's because he's not actually Charles, Charles's son. Oh, 100%. But it could also be because he saw aliens while he was piloting his helicopter. I also feel like part of it, okay, so... Is that he's the hot brother? Is that he's the hot brother. <laughs> also, have you seen the pictures of, like, him next to one of... Diana's friends and it's like mm-hmm. they're the same person mm-hmm. and like we all know that there is marital issues with Diana and Charles like I don't think either one of them was faithful to the other one so in Diana's defense I feel like she probably was until he was just like just so overtly yeah. like out there fucking around and then yeah. she's like you know what there was a point where he realized she realized it it was only a marriage of like appearance appearance yeah so she's like fuck it I'm gonna have you ever heard that story uh, where she, like, allegedly um, had a night out partying on the town with Freddie Mercury? 
I love yeah. that. I love Princess Die. Who doesn't though? What are you going to talk about? This week, I think I finally fully recovered from the last murder story that I did um, in which several kids died and the parents were abusive. So this week, uh, I decided to do a story in which only one child dies while the parents are just absent in a way with a good alibi. So personal growth, we love to see it. And I do have to start off the bat. This is kind of a long one. I do apologize. I'm going to try to get through it as concisely as I can. But anyway, we're going to be talking about the mysterious unsolved murder of Bertha Shippen. As we could have guessed, this is a historical story because I love a good old time murder mystery. Um, So our drama happens in 1902 in a small town called Toita in southern Australia. I just want to Real quick shout out the Dark Curiosities YouTube channel as well as let me pull up the blog because typically my research is a little more scatterbrained but between that video and this particular blog um, we're shouting out Dark Curiosities YouTube channel. She's very good if you ever want to listen to true crime stories in 15 minute clips but told in a very lovely Scottish accent check them out and then the blog it looks like an old MySpace blog almost but It's called The Haunts of Adelaide, and it's written by a man called Alan Tiller, and he did like a very extensive write-up on this case, so shout out to him. Okay, so anyways, back to our story. Thanks for the shout-outs. The family in question here is the Shippens. Um, They were a close-knit, second-generation immigrant family. Apparently, they were staunchly Lutheran, and while holding on to German language and customs, for some reason... All the articles I read like to point out the fact that they're actually not German, they're Wendish, which is apparently a Slavic group that like frequently settles next to Germanic groups. Not sure why exactly they felt the need to mention this. It seems a little bit like, because a lot of the articles were like pulled from microfiche from 1902, and they like to mention that they're Wendish, and I think it's because Wendish people, based on my research, a lot of the time are associated with like witchcraft and that sort of thing. So it almost seems like a schmear campaign. But anyway, it's probably similar to like Roma people. Yeah. And that's what it felt like. This family, they speak German, but they're Wendish. All the research I was doing said like, hey, make sure to mention that. Um, And I think it's just purely based on the fact that we're going to have a little bit of bias based on the fact that they maybe were into witchcraft a little bit. Anyways, I digress. So mom and dad of the family, their names are Johan and Mathis. Mathis Schippen, he was born in 1853 in Germany. Um, so legend has it that after his mother died, his father became a raging alcoholic and his brother was killed and eaten by a wolf. <laughs> at, <laughs> at which point his father moved him to Australia at three years old so that he could be eaten by a giant spider or a crocodile or something that wasn't a wolf. Um, Anyway, so his future wife, Johanna, she was born in Prussia, and then she moved to Australia in 1854. So she's about 10 years older, actually, I think. She was born in 44, and he was in 53. So we love a good cougar on this channel. (laughs) Dad, Mathis, he's like a little bit of a rough and tumble dude. And prior to like the main event of this story, he actually had a brush with the law after he had an altercation with some young dude, um, which basically resulted in him shooting them in the leg. This incident happened in 1896, and he actually stood trial in front of the Supreme Court of Australia. 
he eventually was acquitted somehow, even though he definitely did shoot this man. But <laughs> basically, at this point, the family's reputation was like sort of put in question and had them on shaky grounds with the general population here. And basically, all in all, Mathis, between, you know, shooting a dude and just being the way he was, he was known to be pretty stern and had like a very stick, strict disciplinarian persona with his kids. He and Johan, they have seven kids total. The oldest being named Pauline. They died young as a child, so forget they even exist. Next oldest is Mary. She's going to be important in our story. Then followed by a gaggle of boys, Fritz, Heinrich, Gustav, and Wilhelm. Then in 1988, the youngest is born. Her name is Bertha. And rumor has it she walked herself straight out of the birth canal because it was so easy breezy, loose and goosey (laughs) after all those kids. Poor Johan. I bet she was wishing that birth control had been invented at that point. Anyways, in 1899, some of the older children of the family they had at that point moved out of the house and they'd found work in other areas. Heinrich and Fritz, they were working on nearby farms. So goodbye. We don't care about them anymore. Feel free to forget they exist within the context of the story. The other two boys, Gustav and Wilhelm, they still live at home and they like barely ventured out into the community. um, And actually they were considered to be uneducated and the way they put it is somewhat slow. I believe the PC way to put that nowadays is neurodivergent. So they, the town liked to think that they were slow, which who cares? But again, I think that's just a way for old timey newspapers to maybe demonize or put these boys morals in question. So then we also have Mary. She's still at home. Again, she's the oldest of the surviving children and she's 25 And so she's living at home with mom and dad, like really soaking in that old maid lifestyle. Her and Bertha, who was at the time of our story, 13 years old, they actually worked together at a local cannery. Co-workers, they often commented on the fact that they didn't really seem like sisters, but more like a mother-daughter duo, just because I think the age gap there. Mary, she was like a tall young woman. She had dark brown eyes. She apparently was pretty attractive. And actually, if you look at pictures of her, she is quite pretty. And somewhat quiet, but she was also a very nervous person and just, like, never left home, really. Bertha, on the other hand, she was outgoing, young lady. She was strong-willed, definitely by far Mathis's favorite child. And she just had this dude, like, wrapped around her little finger and can basically, like, daddy would do whatever she said. I feel like I smell a little bit of a jealous sibling plotline brewing here between Mary and Bertha. The Shippen family. They lived in a small cottage that had three rooms. So the layout of this house does become a little bit important. The first room is a large kitchen area slash living area. And there is a door in the kitchen that leads into a second room, the parents' bedroom. In the kitchen, there's a door to the outside and a door to the parents' room. Both of these rooms had doors to the outside. So the kitchen and the parents' room, you could exit the home. But to get to the room in which the girls would sleep... The only way to get in or out of that room is to go through the parents' room, and there's no exit in the girls' room other than to go through the rest of the house. The girls also shared a bed, so Bertha would sleep up against the wall and Mary closer to the door to the parents' room. The parents and daughters, so mom, dad, Bertha, and Mary live inside of the home, and then the two boys, dad's like, you can go sleep out in the barn. So the boys, they basically live in a shed on the property, and then the girls get to be inside the main house. This is important detail. Keep that in mind. Now that we have the background here, this is the point of our story where things get a little bit spicy and slicey. We're going to get drama and murder. Are you ready? Because I sure am. 
On the night of December 27, 1901, Mathis and Joanne Shippen, they leave their cottage in Toita and made their way to a place called Flaxman's Valley, which is about 20 kilometers away. They're like 10-ish miles away, and they plan to stay with friends through the new year to have like a parents-only party, a fuck-them-kids party. And so they planned to return home on January 2nd. Meanwhile, at home on the farm were Mary Bertha, August, and Wilhelm. They're planning a New Year's wager, I am sure. And spoiler alert, a murder happens. Party foul most major. They don't get their party on. (laughs) So January 1st on New Year's Day, August and Wilhelm, they took their rifles out and they're shooting for meat. So like rabbits, foxes, yada yada. This time... Uh, they managed to shoot some parrots. So apparently in Australia in 1902, it was not weird to shoot and eat parrots, which seems a little strange to me. I mean, they eat like kangaroos still. It's just wild to me because parrots are like pets here. So it's strange Mm -hmm. that you would be like, you know what? The exotic. Let's eat a parrot for dinner today. Anyway, that's not important at all. They're like our turkeys. Yeah, there we go. They have a Thanksgiving parrot. They don't have Thanksgiving because they're not American, but they have the Christmas parrot. They left to go shoot their Christmas parrot. Um, They left just after breakfast, came back around lunchtime. Wilhelm, one of the boys, he took the parrots out into the shed to pluck them, and then he puts them in the meat safe. The only important reason I'm bringing this up is because between the time that they left in the morning to go shooting and this point, they hadn't seen Bertha all day. And then Mary takes the parrots and puts them inside the meat safe. So the two boys, they have not seen late eyes on Bertha yet today. They, the two boys, they head off to a nearby friend's house and they don't return until that evening. So keep in mind that they left early in the morning. Then they left again to a friend's house. They have not seen their youngest sister at all that day. Mary and Bertha, they are home by themselves most of that day, like we just said, But late in the evening, Bertha, she goes to play with some neighboring friends and returned home to help Mary with her chores of feeding and watering the animals. The two girls, they eat dinner by themselves about 7 o'clock by Mary's account. And then Bertha, she makes her way to the girls' bedroom. And then Mary's like, I'm going to wait up for my two younger brothers because as we have found out through these historical stories, as parents don't take responsibility for their own damn kids, it's always on the oldest sibling. So Mary's playing mom right now. The boys, they get back about 8 they eat cake in the kitchen, do a few Jaeger bombs. They had their rager, a.k.a. they ate cake with their older sister. So fun, fun party. And retire to the shed as they shared that as the bedroom. So again, the girls are inside, the boys in the shed. They're sleeping peacefully until about 10 p.m. that night where Mary, she is woken up suddenly after she feels the weight of a large man on top of her. Mary screams, obviously, because she's got a strange man on top of her. And then this pisses off the assailant, which prompts him to grab her by the wrist, pull her out of the bed that she shared with Bertha, and throw her across the room where she slams into the family's old sewing machine. This kerfuffle wakes Bertha up, who until this point was asleep like a little sweet baby angel. And both the girls start to scream at the top of their lungs, calling for their brothers in the shed. The stranger tells them, shut up or I will kill you. Again and again, just like that's what he's saying over and over. And then he forces Mary into the kitchen. Bertha is now in the room alone with the assailant. She, Mary, sees the attacker is holding a knife as she's being forced from the room. And then eventually she hears the knife hit the floor of the cottage. So it's sounding like there is some sort of like a dust up happening in the room with him and Bertha. 
At this point, Mary's like, fuck, I need to go get my brothers. She runs outside, leaving Bertha alone in the home with the intruder. And so she's calling out to Gustav constantly as she's running out to the shed. Like this entire time, they're calling and yelling for their brothers. And they're sleeping through it. That's not too unusual because, again, they're in a shed. They're not actually in the home, so they probably just didn't hear. And they're asleep. She runs to the shed to wake them up, tells her brothers there was an intruder, and Gustav is, like, slow to wake up. And he's like, fuck you, Mary. I don't believe that shit. Finally, he hears Bertha screaming, and he's like, oh, wait, maybe you're not pranking me right now. Meanwhile, as Mary is alerting the brothers in the cottage, the assailant ends up cutting Bertha's throat from ear to ear. She has her cardioid artery severed. She basically has struggled with the intruder through the three different rooms of the home. And through this attack, she suffered slashes to the throat, ears, one large cut across the back of her neck. And she's end up being stabbed multiple times in the back of her neck, as well as having her throat slit. And then also on her right and left cheeks, they had been slashed. Her hands were just like covered in blood and scratched. You can tell there was like a very significant struggle here. Thankfully, maybe, like, it sucks that she died, but in a later report, it's discovered that she hadn't suffered any sort of attempted rape or sexual molestation, which is, like, a very small blessing in this whole thing. Like, it sucks, obviously, that she got murdered, but at least it wasn't like a, I'm gonna sexually assault you and then murder you, so. Not much of a silver lining, but a small one. Back outside with the siblings, instead of checking on his little sister, Gustav, he runs to a nearby farm for help. While Mary and the other brother, Wilhelm, they wait in the boys' room until Gustav returns. So when Gustav gets back, the three of them arm themselves with pitchforks and then enter the house. And at this point, they just see pools of blood everywhere. And collectively, they're like, hold up, we are not qualified. So instead, the boys, they head off to a neighboring farm to get help from the local constable. Which, for those American listeners constable is basically the australian version of like a sheriff the constable upon hearing the story that the two shipping boys relay to him rushes back with the boys to the farmhouse for help so the whole group so again the two boys constable and mary they enter the house through the kitchen door and then they follow the trails of blood into the girl's bedroom where laying on the floor in her night clothes was bertha and a pool of her own blood the shippens and the constable they're like we can't stay here we don't know where the intruder is so what they do is they return to the constable's home which happens to be that nearby farm where the constable's parents they like comfort the kids whilst constable what's his nuts heads off by horse to a local police station to make a report and to call in backup basically the next day early in the morning gustav he heads out to let his mom and dad know that bertha's been unalived And the officer in charge, Constable Mowbray is what his name is, he heads out first thing in the morning to basically secure the crime scene at the shipping house. But when he gets there, he finds two knives in the kitchen, a small one on the kitchen table and a large one in the meat safe where the parrots had been hung. There was blood on the wood in the fireplace, on a towel, everywhere. Like, it's just a fucking slaughterhouse. And then there's also remnants of clothing spread about the girl's room. So, again, I think this is just pointing to the fact that there was a significant struggle because really this evidence isn't, like, super important. Constable Mowbray, he's secured the crime scene. He's documenting evidence only to have Mathis and Johan return home about 1 p.m. that day. 
And soon after that, um, Mathis, he's approached to identify Bertha's body and he did so like pretty coldly, which people are like, that's weird. Two days later, the family, they bury Bertha after only allowing two neighbors to prepare the body. So essentially the body is taken away by the two neighbors prepared for burial. It's not really checked for evidence, which isn't unusual for that time because there wasn't any sort of like um, refrigerated morgues or something where you could hold the body while you prepare it for burial and or like have someone check it for evidence. Well, and in Australia, this is also the middle of the summer. Exactly. Yeah. So it would have been pretty warm at this point in time. After the initial crime scene securing happens, the coroner arrives. He's like checking the scene for evidence as well. And at this point, the hunt is on to find Bertha's killer. Eventually, an investigative team of 15 men, they end up setting up office in the family's kitchen. Meanwhile, the Shippens, they start to live their lives in the shed that the boys had been shunned to. Obviously, it is 1902. Nothing exciting is happening in the lives of these common folk, apparently. And so this becomes like the hot gossip around Southern Australia. Of course, soon the media, they arrive to town and they begin inquiring of everyone what they know about the Shippens. They do speak directly with the Shippens who basically answer every question that ends up being thrown at them. There's numerous photographs that they allowed to be taken. So essentially the Shippen family, their stories are pretty rock solid. The media, they also ask questions of everyone they encountered in the town looking for like one person that had an important scoop. Spoiler alert, no one did. And then the reporters decide, you know what would be really appropriate for us to do is to set up shop on the Shippen's property just outside the building where the investigation was taking place, where our daughter was just murdered. And then directly behind the media were, was a field owned by the Shippen's where families from Southern Australia, they set up uh, picnic baskets waiting for any sort of information they could get about their gruesome going ons in the home. A bunch of nosy fucking bitches. Um, also, I would just like to take a moment to point out the fact that uh, the true crime fascination is not something new. Like, it's literally been forever, as we can see by this nosy group of gossipy assholes that are just setting up shop on the Shippen's property as they are mourning the death of a daughter, and there's an active investigation. So, that's fucking great. After the inquest had begun, Gustav, the brother, he is the first to be questioned, followed by the other brother, Wilhelm. The boys' stories differed slightly from that of Mary's original story. Um, So they stated that they had come home and the girls were already in bed. So their statement was essentially that Mary didn't wait up for them, that they served themselves cake, and then they went to their shed. Like we know, Mary's statement said that she had cut the cake for the boys and then they had all kind of retired to bed at the same time. The next person that is called is Dr. Steele. He had been called in to examine the body. So they like have to exhume yada yada. So the statements he makes are pretty damning for Mary. Um, He states that some strips of cloth that are found near Bertha's body had been missing from Mary's nightgown. Mary also had scratches on her arms, bruising on her knees, her upper thighs. Um, Perhaps the most damning of this evidence, though, is that Mary had complained of a sore neck. Dr. Steele had discovered Mary's hair had not been pulled or was even out of place and that the back of her neck had been recently washed. I think they're implying here that it doesn't look like Mary had been physically fought 
by this dude like she hadn't been thrown around like it just doesn't look good for her essentially at this point then it's mary's time or mary's time to tell her side of the story and so she's questioned for four hours and mary she answers all the questions asked of her her story does not change the whole time but one piece of evidence was about to be brought forward that would like change the case and be very very bad for miss mary and her reputation and it would cause literally the biggest media sensation that Southern Australia had ever seen up until this time, essentially. Mary reveals that she had been having, quote unquote, relations with a man named Gustav Nietzsche, not her brother Gustav, a man with a similar name. Um, so the police, they jump on this as a possible motive for having killed Bertha, who, as it turned out, had known of Mary's alleged tryst with this dude. Gustav... Gustav Nietzsche, a.k.a. Uh, Big Papa Mary's, you know, slam piece, was <laughs> then called to the inquest to give his side of the story and to give evidence. And he then spilled the beans that he had been having sex with Mary on at least three occasions, one time in the ship and parents' bed, with Bertha in the next room over, possibly having seen things through the crack in the door. He then let it slip that not only had he slept with Mary... But at one point, um, he and a buddy had been at the Shippen's home while the parents were away and that he, Gustav, had been spooning with Bertha while Mary spooned with another friend of his, which I don't know if um, they actually meant Big Spoon, Little Spoon, or if this is more sexual in nature and it's just old-timey slang. But basically, both sisters had a man over. During this weird spooning session... Gustav had told Bertha that he wanted to take her away to Adelaide with him, which, like, scandal, that's Mary's man. This, of course, in 1902 was a big that no-no. So an unwed woman and man having sex, like, in secret meetings, uh, basically this all adds up to Mary looking guilty in the eyes of the investigators because she was a loose woman, and obviously that means she's also capable of murder. Well, I feel like it was happening, just people didn't know about it. Right, yeah. It wasn't <laughs> talked about, and, you know, I'm sure the men could fuck around, but since it was, like, an unwed older woman, it was, like, a big deal. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the jury that's present at the inquest, they come to the verdict and release a statement that we, the jury, are all of the opinion that Bertha Shippen met her death on the first night of January 1902, by having her throat cut by Mary Augusta Shippen. The investigation concludes with Mary being the guilty party. Mary is then arrested and she is transported to the Adelaide jail where she would await her trial for murder, which would have been a sentence that would have had her hung if she had been found guilty. While Mary sits in jail waiting for trial, the general public are like whipped into a frenzy over the whole case. They're like, looking for any bit of information they could get on it. And on March 4th, a huge crowd of onlookers gathered in Victoria Square near the the courthouse where her trial was taking place. And then a smaller crowd waits at the jail to see if they can spot Mary as she's taken to trial. She is like Kardashian famous in Australia at this point. Everyone wants a piece of her. She is hot shit because she's not only hot, but she's also hot goss. So Mary, go off, man. The trial begins. The prosecution offered the opening argument about the goings-ons that night, which ended with the following statement. 
The suggestion that the prosecution makes is that the deed was either prompted by jealousy arising from an invitation from Gustav to Bertha to accompany him to Adelaide, or by the fear that the knowledge of Mary's misbehavior possessed by Bertha would be communicated to their father upon his return home. So they're saying Mary's guilty. She's jealous of her sister and or her sister is going to spill the beans and she just needs to murder her before dad, daddy finds out. After the trial wraps up for that first day, the police have to use diversionary tactics to take Mary back to the Adelaide jail as the crowd had grown to over 1,500 people around the courthouse trying to just get a glimpse of her purely just for the sick fascination of it. And so now Gustav Nietzsche, the guy that was having the sexy time with Mary, he actually ends up being seen as a villain. So upon leaving court on the day that he was called to take the stand, a large group of angry people had begun to follow him. And it wasn't until a police escort arrived that he was able to escape the angry crowd um, that basically looked like they were going to start a riot over this dude. At some point during this trial and between the time she's arrested and goes to trial, the public frenzy of this case has basically spun the story that Mary is innocent and that Gustav is the one that has like orchestrated or like done these crimes. So Mary, everyone in the public is like, she's not guilty. Gustav did it. Everyone's like cheering for Mary as she leaves the courthouse and then like ready to fucking throw down with Gustav. This case lasts, I think, about a week total. And on day five, the defense finally is able to mount its case. And so they detailed all of the events and possibilities that the prosecution has presented with pretty good defense of Mary. And basically, they defend Mary and then absolutely drag Gustav Niche through the mud. Like, they really lay it on thick and make him seem like the bad guy. And so that evening, after the defense goes, the gathered crowd had become so angry toward Gustav that there was a good chance he would be lynched in the street. So as he made his way down the street, the crowd, they see him and he's struck in the face by two men. So then he takes off running to a new nearby cab rank, which I think is like a cab stall for like the horse-drawn whatevers. Um, But they are all like, that's Gustav, and they ignore him. So he's not able to get a cab out of the town. And so he runs to a hotel where he's quickly turned away by the person that runs the hotel. So he's just like running, looking at every possible juncture for someone to help him. And finally, he's like is dodging people punching him in the face until police hear his screams and like rescue him and escort him away from the crowd, probably saving his life. On day six of the trial, finally the jury comes to a verdict and they issue the ruling of not guilty. And pretty much instantly the crowd erupts with applause and cheers. They're all super stoked that Mary is, you know, off of these charges. And there's 3000 people that have gathered outside the courthouse, um, And so as news spreads through the crowd, it's just like huge celebrations. And so, like I said, the popular opinion was that Mary was innocent. And so this is definitely the outcome that the public had hoped for. Back in the courtroom, the chief justice was shouting for order and like trying to control the celebrations. It was an absolute fucking madhouse. Mary, she's out of jail. Her parents and her are reunited and they are ushered out um, by the police. Basically, as they're being ushered out, Gustav also has to leave the courthouse and so like half the crowd is cheering for Mary and the other half of the crowd is like ready to punch Nietzsche in the face. I don't know. I just think it's funny. Like I don't think he did it personally. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what I think about it. Anyways, now that the trial's over, what 
comes of the Shippen family. Mary, she's now basically the most famous person in Southern Australia. However, the stay at jail had basically worn her and her family down. So, like, their reputations are on shaky standing. So, even though she's so famous for having gone to this trial, the fact that she was having a tryst with this older man out of wedlock, they didn't think that she was guilty of murder, but they did think that she was a little bit of a a <laughs> loose woman. So, she is kind of unmarriageable. The family, they return home from secret to their cottage at Toita. In that period of time, Mathis had seen to it that the whole house had been lime washed and everything was just like clean top to bottom. Around their small town of Toita, a rumor began to circulate that it was actually Mathis who had done the brutal killing. The rumor basically points back to that shooting incident that he had been involved with earlier. They're all like, well, he's capable of violence. Further evidence to make him look guilty points to the fact that they had found a horse on the Mathis's farm that looked like it had just been heavily ridden, like it was perspiring, it was very tired. So it seemed as if the horse had been really overrun to like quickly go from Flaxen Hill back to the cottage. Then maybe he had murdered her, then run back on the horse. And then after Gustav had been like, oh my God, Bertha's dead. And they had run the horse back again. So they're like, well, this horse is very tired and very sweaty, so it looks like it has just been overrun today. Now, we know that Mathis was with family and friends in Flaxen's Valley on the night in question. So the facts really don't point to him actually having been the perpetrator. But the town basically are full of gossipy assholes, as we know. Their life is really never the same in this small town again. Um well, so, and horses can do a thing where, like, they basically just, like, sweat really hard and it looks like they've worked really hard and mm-hmm. they get too stressed out. Yeah. Literally, like, horses of the animal world, they're, like, orchids. Like, they're very hard to keep alive. Yeah. So, <laughs> like... Well, and like you said earlier, too, it's the middle of Australian summer, so you could literally just be standing there and breaking a sweat. Yeah. Life for Mary and the Shippens is really never the same again. They are continuously shunned and judged by the peers and locals in town because not only are they like Mary has loose morals, but Mathis probably murdered his daughter. They kind of tend to just stick to the family farm. And then Mary becomes really, really withdrawn from society and she earns the nickname of the Grey Lady by the locals. So she's like a woman of loose morals, according to the town. I think that's a really harsh and unfair judgment to make of her, but it's 1902. Finally, in 1908, Mathis, he decides that they're going to sell the farm and move away to a town called Light Pass. He dies just a couple years later. And then Mary and her mother, they live in this town of Light Pass until 1917 when Mary, she contracts tuberculosis. And so they have to move to Adelaide where she's confined in a consumptive home. And then Johan, the mom, she moves to live with Gustav, who has settled in a town called Mount Mary. Mary dies eventually. She's, again, in the consumptive home. She dies in 1919. She's buried in a cemetery there. And then mom, she lives until 1923. And she's just living off of a small amount of money that was left to her by Mary and dies of, I'm assuming, old age. Wilhelm, one of the brothers, he never marries. He eventually also contracts tuberculosis and dies at the age of 42. Basically, the other members of the family, we don't really know what happened to them after Mary's trial. They all kind of went reclusive because, like I said, their reputation was kind of not great. Gustav Nietzsche, the the villain of the trial, he essentially could not set foot anywhere in southern Australia without being recognized. 
because in this trial, his picture had basically been splashed across newspapers all across the state. So he eventually moves to a different state, legally changes his name, and gets married and has six kids. That leaves us to poor Bertha, whose murder was never solved. And still to this day, we don't know who did it. It kind of sounds like the um, the Hinterkaifeck murders. Yeah, a little bit it does. It also reminds me a bit of um, the Velisca murders, just because it's you, we don't know who did it. Granted, nobody was left alive there. And, you know, my theory on this is that someone in this family definitely knows who did the murder. So I'm yeah. almost of the theory that one of the brothers did it because Mary saw the man like she had a good clear look at the man so she would have known who did it so maybe one of the brothers came in in the middle of the night was planning some nefarious deeds and then Mary's like I I can't disclose the actual murderer and she took the blame and then one thing leads to another I don't know or maybe Gustav did it not brother Gustav but lover Gustav we'll never know unfortunately it's terror time. Baby, terror it's terror time. time. Let's find out time. what's going to happen this week. Terror time. Ooh, terror. <laughs> so for the tarot reading this week, we have the nine of wands, which that is reversed. Uh, that means like failure um, or like paranoia. And then we have the two of pentacles, which reversed again. Which is, like, irresponsible or, like, disorganization. So, like, paranoia with disorganization. And then we have the artist reversed, which is, like, unstable or, like, judgmental or greedy. The Ten of Cups reversed, which is, like, incompletion or, like, misalignment. It can also mean, like, a broken relationship, but this feels more along with these other cards, like, Based on, like, paranoia, based on, like, kind of recklessness, um, we have the Page of Wands, which is, like, you're going to go on some kind of adventure because of all this stuff. And then we have the Eight of Wands reversed, which is, that is, like, frustration or delay. So, overall, it feels like you're going to have a bad week this week, maybe. But, like, just oh, kind no. of an annoying week based on, like... Your own paranoia, your lack of preparedness, your recklessness. There's going to be some unpreparedness happening. Let me pull another card. Yeah, so, like, basically, you're just going to be whining a little bitch about it. Maybe this this is for <laughs> the guy at McDonald's, honestly. That seems, yeah, probably. He does seem like a yeah. whiny little bitch, so that would make sense. Well, on that note, um, fuck yous for the week. We have the man from McDonald's. <laughs> Yes. Um, I want to also issue a fuck you to Jenny Mielan Spears because Brittany recently dragged her on Instagram and it seems like she is really shitty. She's um, always been shitty. Yeah. Yeah. And now Brittany's even copying to it. So fuck you, Jamie, both Jamie and Jamie Lynn. Again, we've said fuck you to them earlier, but uh, we're going to reissue that one. Well, wasn't there like tea about her on the set of Zoe 101 where she was just like a massive bitch to everyone yeah. and just like treated everybody horribly? Well, not only that, but she like scammed a bunch of fans into thinking there was like a Zoe 101 reboot happening and then like somehow she like scammed money out of people in that whole reboot situation. I don't know exactly how that happened. Uh, but she was lying. There was never a reboot. Um, so yeah, that's wonderful. Oh, and also she was going to publish a book called uh, One More Time or something like that. 
Um, essentially, she was taking a lyric from one of her sister's songs and titling her book that way. Um, and eventually, she did have to change the title of the book because I think even she realized how uncouth that was. But yeah, she is a snake. We hate her. And then also, snake F you to that lady that ruined my day on Thursday by being a big old bee on the phone. Um, but yeah, so that's our FUs and our lessons for the week. Um, don't be mean to customer service reps. Yeah. Don't trust the government. Don't trust the government. Mm-mm. No baby. And, uh, hmm. Maybe because a woman, uh, is not virginal doesn't mean that she's guilty of doing a murder. Mm-hmm. That's a big one. That's a big one. Um, but also maybe don't have relations with... You know what I didn't even touch on in my story is that this dude was like, I think, 25 and he was spooning with a 13-year-old. So don't be doing that either. That's disgusting. Yeah. I don't care if it was 1902 and child brides were like more of a thing. It's still disgusting. It was still gross. Yeah. So maybe I'll add Gustav to our list of FUs as well as our advice segment on uh, don't spoon with 13-year-olds. Unless you're also a 13-year-old. I do have one little announcement to issue is that we will be taking a break next week. I'm going on a little family vacay. So we're just going to, instead of over-prepare and still release an episode next week, we're just going to take a week off and enjoy our summer a little bit. So on that note, uh, we will see you at the next episode, which will be in two weeks. You can find all of our socials in the description box in the podcast description wherever that happens to be on the platform you're on you're smart you'll figure it out we'll probably be posting on instagram here and there follow our stories it's a shit posting nightmare and we love it um and (laughs) other than that we will see you in the next episode thanks so much for watching we'll talk to you later bye bye